0: Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards co-hosting today, joined by Pastor Scott, not digitally, but we missed the cue. Yeah, <laughs> right here. <laughs> so, noting the... Uh, the purpose of this broadcast is to, of course, take your Bible questions. You can send them to us at our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. We'll be keeping an eye on the tab on the right-hand side of the screen for your questions to be left in the form of a comment. And if you'd like to email us off hours, that will be on display at the bottom of the screen. Also note, if you would like to join us on social media, our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope, and our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, since we can't control when or why we are taking off those platforms. If we are not broadcasting and it's not due to technical mishaps, you can still join us on our website, which, again, we recommend you join us as soon as and as often as you can. C-A-L-V-A-R-Y com. Click on the Watch Live tab in the purple bar at the top of the screen and we'll be happy to engage with you there as well as to provide a countdown to our next broadcast and live stream and also our bi-weekly Bible studies at this moment going through the Book of Revelation on Wednesday nights and we seem to be uh, nearing into some pretty Not dark, but definitely uh, dodgy territory in Revelation chapter
1: 12. (laughs) That's true. Uh, What what was the title you came up for for that? uh, Everything you wanted to know about Satan but were afraid to ask. Afraid to ask. Well, once again, fear breeds in darkness, and the light of God's Word can shine on these things. And I think, uh, believe it or not, although we are going to be talking about uh, the career and the tactics of the wicked one, uh, I think you're going to find it a very encouraging study, uh, very important for us to realize that uh, those who are with us are more than those who are against us. Numerically and substantially. But with that being said,
0: uh, we want to give as much time to your questions as we can. So why don't we start off in a word of prayer, and we'll get right to our topic.
1: Yeah, Lord, thank you so much that we have this opportunity today to be able to explore your word together. And I pray, Father, that you would guide us through your spirit. I pray that you would speak through your word. I pray that we would be built up in our relationship with you and draw near, Lord. What a privilege that because of what Jesus has done, we can enter into your gates with thanksgiving, your courts with praise, and uh, find uh, that uh, boldness to be able to enter the most holy place in heaven itself and have that face-to-face fellowship with you. We pray that in some small way this broadcast would be used by you to build up and provide that blessing and benefit for us as your flock. uh, We thank you for the privilege of knowing you and making you known during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true.
0: All right, now it is a... Not necessarily a commemoration of ancient history, but recent history Israel's refounding is celebrating its next of course uh i not not centennial but uh what uh three score and uh fourteen
1: yeah well uh seventy four years ago, Israel was founded as a nation if you're in uh, Israel today uh during the time of this broadcast, you'd be celebrating israel's independence day and uh A few things uh, tie into all of this as far as uh, what's going on in the Middle East. uh, Prophetically, uh, there there has been a real dust-up. Israel has walked a fine line in the Ukraine-Russian conflict, Uh, Naftali Bennett actually serving as an intermediary between Vladimir Putin and uh, 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 Prime Minister Zelensky in uh, Ukraine. Uh, but apparently that is uh, changing now. Uh, the uh, Israel Foreign Ministry summoned a Russian ambassador to Israel, Anatoly Viktorov, uh, to protest the egregious comments made by Russian Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov uh, saying that Hitler had Jewish blood and so does Zelensky. Um, Lavrov's comments came in response to a question on an Italian radio interviewer about how he could call Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky a Nazi when Zelensky himself is a Jew. In addition, Alarov says, for a long time now we've been hearing that wise Jewish people say the biggest anti-Semites are Jews themselves. Well, despite Israel's lack of desire to antagonize Russia for obvious reasons, uh, because it could boomerang against them, because of the strong Russian presence In Syria uh, and uh, cause Israel's uh, damage. Well, uh, the uh, statement uh, that Larov made really made it impossible for Israel to remain neutral uh, at this. And uh, along with summoning the Russian ambassador, Naftali Bennett's uh, response to Larov's words also signaled that Israel is sliding off the fence towards the Ukrainian side in this uh, particular. Uh, conflict. Uh, Bennett said, I view with the utmost severity the Russian foreign minister's statement. His words are untrue and their intentions are wrong. The goal of such lies is to accuse Jews themselves of the most awful crimes in history, which were perpetrated against them. I guess you're saying that Hitler was Jewish. That would be uh, an example of that, and therefore absolve Israel's enemies of responsibility. Uh, Bennett, who on Holocaust Remembrance Day last week declared in a speech at Yad Vashem, we talked a lot about Holocaust Remembrance uh, Day last week, uh, said that nothing can be compared to the Holocaust. and It was time for individuals to quit throwing that terminology around uh, willy-nilly and uh, using it as a political tool. So uh, the fact that he was willing to take the Russian foreign minister to task for his comments uh, tells a couple things. First of all, it tells us how bad uh, he found Larov's words. Uh, and the, the distance he's traveled in the 10 weeks that this war has been going on. He's gone from condemning the war, uh, but never mentioned the Russians by name to now, slamming the Russian uh, foreign minister. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the uh, incident going on there, it is definitely heating up. And prophetically, uh, we know that uh, Russia will not be An ally of Israel in the last days. We know that from Ezekiel 38 and 39, one day Russia will lead a coalition of nations in an attempt to wipe Israel off the map once and for all. So that relationship is always going to be a uh, a dicey one, to be sure. Another uh, very interesting thing that uh, was uh, posted in the Jerusalem Post uh, these days, we've talked quite a bit about uh, the idea of uh, of, uh, Uh, the uh, Temple Mount and the increasing interest in the Temple Mount. Well, there were a couple articles uh, that broke in the Jerusalem Post uh, that uh, definitely referred to this idea. Uh, One of them, written by Emily Schrader, uh, talked about the truth behind the Al-Aqsa Mosque and uh, the fact that, interestingly, and uh, I'm just going to give you the condensed version of this, you want to discuss it further, we certainly can on the broadcast, but uh, one of the things Emily Schrader points out is that uh, the other members of the so called uh, Abraham Accords, including the Saudis, are uh, starting to make statements that uh, the Palestinian claim to the Al Aqsa Mosque, that it is the third holiest shrine in Islam, are tenuous at best. Uh, even the Saudis are beginning to say that, and they feel, in uh, their point of view, that instead of focusing in on Jerusalem, Muslims would be better served to focus in on Mecca and Medina as uh, the focal points of their faith, which is a huge sea change in how uh, these uh, nation states that have uh, underwritten the Palestinians and uh, their uh, war against Israel have felt about all of that. That was uh, pretty significant. Also, on uh, the Jerusalem Post website, there was an entire article devoted to a Christian version Of the future of the temple itself, written by a Christian uh, individual. The headline was A Christian View of the Coming Temple in their uh, opinion section. It was uh, written by Christine Darg, who is uh, part of a a group of uh, believers that are definitely and decidedly uh, interested in uh, what's going on in Israel at this particular time. She's the founder of the Jerusalem Channel and can be uh, uh, viewed on jerusalemchannel.tv. But uh, uh, Ms. Darg uh, does an incredibly uh, good job of uh, presenting a solid biblical point of view about what scripture says regarding the future of the temple. And the fact that this is published in the Jerusalem Post is significant. So if you get a moment and you want to uh, read up on that, go to uh, jpost.com slash Christian World slash article, and uh, Ms. Darg's uh, article will come up there. And it's a very interesting read indeed. So uh, when... Uh, The idea of uh, Israel celebrating its 74th anniversary comes up, Sean. Inevitably, another scripture uh, gets brought up that has caused uh, a lot more heat than light to uh, surface in Christian circles, hasn't it?
0: Yes, when we are discussing anything when it comes to the end times, obviously 101, maybe 102, if you're being generous, should be that we don't Know the day or the hour of the Lord's return. Now, whether you put that at the end of the tribulation or beginning, it's neither here nor there. We can talk consistency in a moment. But the handling of the passage, no man knows the day or the hour, is not giving us a lot of wiggle room. Especially in reference to the end times, regardless of your positions on where that ultimately doesn't know or how that doesn't know applies to us, we need to make sure that we aren't setting dates in regards to anything in the end times just to be safe. So people tell you the antichrist is going to come to power at this time, don't believe them. You say Jesus is going to return on this date at this time for these reasons, don't believe them. If someone says they received a private vision and it's in direct contradiction with the plain words of Jesus, don't believe them. But people will still make the effort and it usually stems from three main, I guess, reasoning processes. Right. The first is when we talk about the statement that generation will not pass Away till all these things are fulfilled. So they hone in on the word generation and say, Well, how does the Bible use the word generation? Is there some mystery code that we're being given here by Jesus, despite him saying that there is no code that's going to cancel out what I just said? Don't so <laughs> yeah. let the facts yeah. confuse you with what you want to find out. So they would say, Well, in the Psalms, Psalm of Moses in particular I believe Psalm 90 it says that a man's days will be 70 years or 80 if he has strength right in the book of Genesis chapter 6 I believe it notes that uh, man's days shall be 120 years yeah and then when we look at other passages it varies anywhere in between
1: or the famous passage in numbers about uh, the 40-year generation yeah uh, those that who would, would die them. out in the wilderness yeah so
0: taking all these things into consideration essentially the most popularized and the most most substantiated, and I say that with a half smile on my face. Uh, interpretations or determinations of the coming of the Lord or the fulfillment of Jesus's failed prophecy that we wouldn't know the day or the hour are essentially based on this. 88 reasons why Jesus must come back in 1988. They determine that from the. 1940s being the time that Israel came back into the land. 48 plus
1: 40 years is 1988.
0: That was the foundation of their thesis. Other people that said it more in the modern day would say, well, 70 or 80, so that would be uh, 73 years. The 80 would be towards the end of the tribulation, so 73 years on the dot. That came, that went. Uh, Harold Camping and others like him have tried to skew the numbers and say, well, we don't know when they control the temple mount and when that countdown clock is started and all well intended or not all these ministries end up falling short of the very plain and the very direct words of jesus no man knows the day or the hour Not even the Son, but the Father only. And when the disciples asked Jesus following his resurrection in Acts chapter 1, will you now restore the kingdom? Are we going to see this whole revelation business get in action? They didn't have revelation yet, but you get the point. He said, it is not given to you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Now, we can... Follow the rabbit trail of, well, if Jesus was God, wouldn't he know everything? How would he limit his knowledge like this? There's two ways we can go about that, but we want to stay on topic. Ask later in the broadcast if you'd like to know. But when it comes to this main issue, people are going to say, oh, well, Israel's celebrating 73 or 74 74. years, so I guess we missed the cutoff point to 80. But they would look at anything in relation to Israel, so far so good, As prophetically significant. So far, so meh.
1: Yeah.
0: And therefore, this prophecy is in direct contradiction to the plain words of Jesus. I want this to mean this. Therefore, what this means can't mean what it says, because I want this to mean what I want it to. Right. We don't come to the Bible with a presupposition, especially but not limited to the end times, and say, how do I prove it? We say, what does the Bible state, and how is this supported right. by other passages, by plain interpretation, by contextualizing it, by asking what does this mean in the most simple sense possible, and if it's a quotation, what's it referencing? If it's a allusion or a cultural reference, what are some ways we can check the background of it, and on we go. But make sure that whenever someone comes to you with a tract or a, you know, Multi-paragraph long, not speaking from experience at all, explanation as to why Jesus is going to come down, and they start talking about constellations and so forth. Don't ba- don't waste the time yeah. either reading through those things or engaging with them because a they've already made up their mind, and b their mind isn't on Scripture. So no matter what you show to them in conflict with how they're handling the Bible. It's not going to go anywhere. We want to have a rational and a consistent approach towards Scripture, and the plain sense always makes sense. If not, then seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense, as our friend Don Stewart oftentimes says. So the point being made is this. Regarding the end times, is this prophetically significant? Regarding the date, no. Regarding the refounding of Israel, yes, but not regarding the Lord's return.
1: Yeah, that is the sign par excellence, I believe, that we are in the general ballpark, is that Israel's back in the land. Uh, Take a look at Ezekiel chapters 36 through 39. You're going to see an incredibly vivid uh, series of prophecies about uh, the physical restoration of the land in 36. Uh, As we get into chapter 37, the famous Valley of the Dry Bones, it talks about a physical and then a spiritual restoration of Israel. And then 38 and 39, the last day's invasion by uh, the uh, Russian coalition, the Gog and Magog War, as it's referred to there. Fascinating stuff indeed. And really, build up your faith. The Bible's way ahead of us in terms of what's going on in this world.
0: Yep. So with that said, uh, just keep an eye on the sky and make sure that the blood is still flowing as you do so. Well, we want to get out to our questions with the time that we have left. Uh, starting this question from Holly, who wants to know regarding the gift of tongues. I guess it's been a while. Um, she wants to know, are we supposed to know how to speak in tongues? With further clarification, is it? are we supposed to understand what we're saying or especially in particular, are we supposed to be able to speak with tongues on command? Uh, when it comes to instructions on the gift of tongues we don't want to look to demonstrations of it we want to look to explanations of it and the best and most concise and clear explanation of the gift of tongues is found in three chapters 1 Corinthians chapters 12 13 and 14 chapter 12 lists the variety of tongues through which we all receive from the lord and the purpose they're ultimately supposed to culminate yeah. chapter 13 makes sure that they're all kept in check and improper understanding of their purpose and that they pale in comparison to the best spiritual gift, which is love, and from that all gifts can be practiced with the right heart. And then finally, fourteen, he goes into the times, places, peoples, and circumstances. Care maintenance. Yeah, yeah, where tongues would be appropriate. And he also talks about prophecy and he also talks about prayer. But the point being made is this in First Corinthians fourteen in particular, there are two general audiences that tongues are supposed to minister to Christians and non-Christians notice not the speaker it's always in the benefit of the one hearing The gift practice, not the one enacting it. The other interesting thing about the gift of tongues is that when we see it abused, uh, when people try to call it up by command and say, well, if I just speak random words, then that will be the tongues of men and of angels, totally missing the whole point of 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1, but that hasn't stopped them before. The emphasis that Paul is going to place on the gift of tongues is that it's a sign to unbelievers for what purpose? Yeah,
1: well, it's uh, to uh, basically talk about judgment.
0: It was to make sure that they didn't understand what was being said so that they would ask the question,
1: why? Yeah.
0: <laughs> and the sign to believers was so that they would understand because when is this gift of tongues appropriate in the context of fellow believers if it has an interpretation right so if you have the gift of tongues then obviously needing a gift of interpretation that would require someone other than the one who spoke in the tongues you aren't going to know what you're saying in the context of believers right but if on the other hand I'd say what about in the context of non-believers it's for them to not understand for people to realize there's a spiritual block going on here why can't I understand what's being said to show that there's a distance between you and God well that would require you and the person involved both to say I don't know what was said otherwise it could be made clear very quickly now, we could note Isaiah's handling of those who would be seeing and not, underst- uh, not seeing, hearing and not understanding, not even necessarily being in a different language, but them just being spiritually dead to the words being stated. Just, this doesn't make any difference to me whatsoever. You can speak in English and not understand. I'm sure you have that experience regularly on the broadcast when I'm talking. But the point being made is this. In the gift of tongues... Both scenarios note that you're speaking a understood language, and understood language, let me get my grammar correct, otherwise I might be accused of it, and we need to understand its origin isn't from our mind, but from the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God gives it to us, it's for His prescribed purposes, which given in Scripture are assigned to believers or assigned to non-believers, both which we don't understand what we're saying. But... In the sign to believers, we can learn what we're saying through another spiritual gift, which is interpretation. Right. And in the sign to non-believers, it's meant to communicate judgment to the non-believer to show there's a gap between them and what is being said. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in another language, but the point still stands. Now, to then clarify this, when it comes to clarifying truth, we need to understand, first you need a definition— Then you need an illustration, then you need an application. We need to know what's being said, we need to understand how it is said, and then where it is ultimately being stated. How do we fit this into our life? Most people just give an illustration and think that's what it means. No. What does tongues mean? It's a spiritual gift given by God in specific context. How is it said? Well, as a sign to non-believers, read 1 Corinthians 14, and a sign to believers as well. It notes the understanding is absent from both, I guess, sources. But, but what there else? are
1: examples where non-believers did understand the gift of tongues, like Acts chapter 2.
0: And that was, of course, yeah. to glorify God. But yeah. we note that is where the illustration comes in. You had your own experience with the gift of tongues, and this was a sign to a non-believer, but for the purpose of evangelism, was it not?
1: Yeah, uh, well, uh, it was an uh, incident that took place at a Calvary Chapel uh, Pastors Conference. There was an afterglow uh, meeting that was going on uh, up in the Big Bear area. Well, because we were sharing the facility with uh, the uh, Bible College at that time, uh, we had to go down to a uh, Hilton Hotel. It was down the road a ways. And have that particular meeting. Well, the Hilton Hotel's policy was if you're going to have any kind of a meeting, you've got to have a bartender on duty even if uh, nobody's ordering drinks. And so uh, during this gathering, uh, one of the pastors led forth in an utterance in tongues. And the fellow who was overseeing uh, the afterglow says, okay, we're going to wait on an interpretation. Well, there was no interpretation forthcoming. And so uh, the uh, fellow leading the, uh, the afterglow said, well, it does it appears that uh, the gift of tongues isn't in order right now the Lord's not leading in that way but afterwards uh, the bartender came up to the guy who was leading the meeting and he said uh, you know what just happened there and he said that fellow you know who prayed what was that all about and he goes oh well you know that was uh, the uh, spiritual gift of speaking in tongues And he goes really and he goes well I'm from Iran and that fellow glorified God in perfect Farsi as so, a result of that he ended up giving his life to Christ.
0: So it was in the context of a sign to a future believer. Why? Because an interpretation was present.
1: Right. now He had the interpretation because he understood the language.
0: Now, if on the other hand, we were to look at that in reverse, when Jesus said, well, did Isaiah speak of you? When he said, seeing you will not see and hearing you will not understand, it wasn't as if they didn't speak Aramaic or Hebrew. It was the fact they couldn't physically, spiritually, mentally understand what he was saying. Yeah. There was a block there. Yeah. So the sign of of speaking in tongues, comes from the Spirit for the purposes that he has prescribed in his Word. If groups try to fold, spindle, and mutilate it to make it a sensational experience, check it out. We won't say that they're evil, they're wrong, or they're false teachers. We'll say if it's in line with God's word, it'll be in line with God's truth. What God's already said Mm -hmm. will be in line with what God's apparently also presently saying. But if on the other hand it's not, well then you know where to put that information. In the circular file 13, also known as the garbage. So the point being made is that, Holly, uh, tongues is very, very plainly spelled out for us. The people who come to the text like with the end times issue we just dealt with and already came up with their conclusions, well they're not going to come to any objective conclusion we just need to be able to say, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Yeah. So once again, just for the sake of clarity, so that we have made our position clear on this, tongues comes from the Spirit for the purposes of the Spirit. The Spirit, in his scripture, has given two scenarios in which tongues is appropriate, to unbelievers where no one understands what's being said, and a sign to believers where it is understood through another gift that is an interpreter if there is no interpreter then it's not from the spirit or at least not in that sense yet if it isn't understood or not meant to be understood then it's any sign of judgment and in either case note the purpose right. is for the glorification of god that is what every spiritual gift is meant to do but they all pale in comparison to the verse or the chapters rather right in the middle of 12 and 14 which is love Without God's heart, you can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and it profits you nothing. It's sounding
1: brass, a clanging cymbal, meaningless noise. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I'd add to that is, uh, Holly, there does appear to be, in a sense, a hybrid of this that the Apostle Paul speaks of in First Corinthians 14. Uh, there he says in verse 13, Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For by praying in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion, then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit uh, only, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. He said, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that might teach others than 10,000 words in a tongue. He goes on to say that if there is no interpreter, let that person speak to himself and to God. Uh, In other words, there does appear to be a devotional aspect of the gift of speaking in tongues where people who have this particular gift can pray in a language they haven't learned, but the Lord will... Uh, Also, if asked for, provide them with the interpretation as they're praying. That's why Paul says, I do both. I don't just pray with the Spirit. I also pray with the understanding. And note, so you began
0: with Scripture for the definition. What would be an example or an illustration of that? We had, uh, following the days after 9-11 in our local fellowship, a woman who was praying, and she started speaking Hebrew. You took Hebrew and were unknowing at the time, the interpreter in this situation. Yeah. But she said, uh, oh, well, there was an interpretation. I feel bad. And you said,
1: oh, you don't know Hebrew? Oh, I was the interpreter here. Yeah, I missed out on that. I knew what she said, but uh, it was like so natural because I'd studied uh, Hebrew that I just didn't share. I just thought, oh, well, that's, that's great. Someone on 9-11 is, praying in, is uh, praying in Hebrew who knows Hebrew.
0: But no, at that yeah. point, she didn't know it, but she was aware that she was speaking in her prayer language. She didn't know what she was saying, though, tying it back to your
1: question. Yeah, but I do think there are some people, and uh, you can talk to them individually about their experience in their devotional life, where they will pray in a tongue and also pray with their understanding at the same time.
0: But note, Scripture first, experience second. Uh, Here's a question from Robert who wants to know regarding deliverance. uh, For those of you who aren't in on the shorthand, that is the approach towards ministry that views any and every form of the flesh manifesting itself, whether it's in having a lack of self-control regarding your mouth, regarding a lack of self-control regarding your temper, regarding sexual sin, regarding lying, regarding cheating, stealing. It's all a result of demonic intervention if you will they would categorize it with oppression as opposed to possession but the point still stands that exorcism is the go-to for any form of spiritual growth and i guess um what would be the word i guess uh response to uh, sins in your life. Instead of confession, it is confrontation. Instead of uh, seeking edification, it is exorcism. It is bringing the matter entirely in the focus of the demonic and not on the flesh or the world. So with that said, um, he's watched many videos via YouTube. I think that explains anything. (laughs) of Ministers praying for people to get delivered, say, of demonic uh, influence, but it's almost as if it gives a stage for the enemy. You then said, I know when Jesus healed and did deliverance. We're going to be careful with that word because, again, we had to clarify it. Uh, He did showcase it or give the enemy, or I guess you said didn't showcase it or give the enemy a platform, but rather said be quiet and come out. But there was also an account, we'll clarify this, where Jesus... Asked the demon its name. He didn't. And we'll show you where and why in a second. But I believe it was for a purpose. That's true. I am all for deliverance from the Lord, but showcasing it or making it a show is not wise in my eyes. We would agree, Robert. Uh, Thanks and shalom. The peace of the Lord be with you too, brother. Um, Yeah, we always cringe when we hear about deliverance ministries because we think it comes not necessarily from false teaching, but definitely bad teaching. When people say that, oh, well, you deny that the demonic plays any role in spiritual warfare no not at all we just don't think that every spiritual obstacle is a result of a demon oppressing you in some way yeah when jesus combated the two men outside the gadarenes he named them quote-unquote in this ritual that was taken into roman catholic tradition and also popularized by other modern books like strong's and so forth where they would say uh, what is your name? And the men said, My name is Legion, for we are many. So notice there wasn't a name. There was a description of their numbers. Yeah. So yeah, no, Demarcation, if you will. Yeah. So unless you're going to note that a demon has a collective name and through which you gain power over them, there weren't individual names being Shown, and if you go, say, for example, in the book of Acts, the uh, Philippian demoniac, the woman who was given a spirit of soothsaying, and when Paul, after several days of putting up with her, uh, cast the demon out in the name of the Lord Jesus, no names were mentioned accepted the lord (laughs) jesus and the only result was instead of a ritual or instead of vomiting or instead of this big show and stage as you said robert she simply was delivered and that was that now uh, when we're talking about the issues of exorcism or not carte blanche we would identify it as successful with one and only one thing in the name of jesus Fill in the blank. Be quiet. Get out of here. By the name of Jesus, we have authority over the enemy. But our job isn't to manhandle them or to, you know, go back to the wranglings of Solomon and say, you're going to use your authority over water to help gather the brick and mortar for my temple trust me it got weird the purpose that's an actual book by the
1: way yeah <laughs> the wrangling <laughs> is of, of solomon yeah. it's an
0: old book but yeah. uh, when we're talking about these issues the concern that we have is as you stated robert giving too much attention to the enemy rather than on the lord there are other things that are wrong with this and we'll answer them as they come but when it's discussing Robert's main concern of having that idea of demon demon where's the demon having your attention on okay we got to get to the heart of this issue it's a spiritual one and then Acknowledge that spiritual issue as only and always the demonic. What are the biblical problems with that assumption?
1: Well, in broad strokes, uh, we never see uh, Christian growth or dealing with areas of sin in life as uh, something that involves exorcism. It always involves dying to our flesh. It involves uh, submitting ourselves to God, if you will, not casting out a particular demon that's involved there. Uh, there's another huge problem with it. In 1 John chapter 4, and verse 4, we are told, you're of God, little children, and you've overcome them. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, notice it doesn't say, greater is he that is in you uh, than he that might have a little uh, foothold in your life and has taken back this area in your life. Uh, no, it says, when the Holy Spirit indwells you, there's no room for Satan to set up a roommate situation going on there. It's just, it just doesn't. Happen doesn't stand up under Scripture. We need to understand that spiritual warfare is a reality. We don't undersell that at all, but uh, we need to understand the nature of that spiritual reality. Uh, We're told in Colossians chapter two, uh, in verse fifteen, that Jesus has disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In other words, uh, Satan is a defeated foe. He prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. A friend of mine put it this way, but his teeth have been pulled. Uh, the only thing he can do to upset our apple cart, if you will, is to get us to believe false things about God, about ourselves, about what the nature of knowing God is, and uh, about God's word. He deals in deception. That's where spiritual warfare does its, its most dramatic uh, damage, if you will. And so really important for us to understand that when people come and they go, oh, I want to be delivered of this demon – Uh, there's in a sense where there's some drama involved with all of that and I think uh, certain people are involved with deliverance ministries like the drama that's involved with it there are certain people who will say well um, you know I had them pray to cast this demon out of me and it worked I experienced this well uh, we go back again to first Thessalonians chapter 5 where we are called to test all things and hold fast what is good how do we test things we test them according to the word So we never see in Scripture, uh, in dealing with believers, a believer having a demon cast out of them, or a believer saying, you know, brother, uh, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, you got a problem with greed there, so we're going to cast this demon of greed out of you. It was all about uh, being accountable for your own sins, if you will. And we read through the epistles. If it was just a question of a uh, pastor taking authority over some principality and power that had weaseled its way into your life, certainly we would see those direct instructions that are found in the Word, but it's never there. There are all kinds of instructions about dying to self and dying to the old man and putting off the old ways and asking for the power of God's Spirit to give us uh, the fruit of the Spirit, among which are self-control, to be able to deal with those sort of things. So uh, when people talk about uh, deliverance ministries uh, it isn't a question of kicking demons out of our hearts that causes Christian growth. It's about uh, allowing the Lord to have more space within our lives that causes Christian growth. All right. Let us know if that helps you out, Robert, and thank you for the question.
0: Uh, here's a question we received from Linda by email uh, regarding who Janice and Jambres were. They're mentioned in 2 Timothy 3 8, uh, but concerning their, uh, I guess, other mentioning, you look up Control-F with the whole Bible on display and no other words than those passages come up. Yeah, Some uh, come up with the theory that they're fictional characters and that Paul's making an illustration by referencing extra-biblical material like the Midrash and the yeah. Talmud. Yeah. Uh, others would go even a step farther and say this is a spiritual revelation of the two sorcerers that were resisting Moses in Exodus 7, I believe, and on the list goes. But when it comes to more information rather than less, why don't we just give the people what they ask for? Yeah.
1: And, uh, and again, uh, the, the, there is was longstanding Jewish tradition that Janus and Jambres, by name, were the two chief ma- magicians who uh, withstood Moses and Aaron. Uh, there are others who believe that Janus and Jambres were the uh, Egyptian priests who went along with the people of Israel when they left Egypt, part of the mixed multitude, and that they were the ones that orchestrated the worship of the golden calf. Again, no scriptural basis for all of this, uh, just speculation as far as the names of these individuals are concerned. Other people believe that uh, they were two servants of Balaam, uh, the false prophet who uh, tried to curse Israel but was only able to uh, bless them. So, you know, when we take a look at these sort of things, uh, you know, we would, uh, again, go back to... The Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8. And uh, just because the Midrash mentions these guys uh, doesn't mean that everything in the Midrash is correct. But because they mention these guys by name and because the Apostle Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit, mentions their names, then I think it's safe to say that the two magicians, and that's specifically who Paul mentions here, just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses, So these men also opposed the truth. So we see that there's a parallel between Janus and Jambres and the false teachers of Paul's day. And so what were these false teachers trying to do in Moses' day? They were trying to turn Pharaoh's heart away from turning the true and living God. Same thing going on then. So I think it's safe to say that those uh, priests were named Janus and Jambres who got into the uh, war of miracles, if you will with uh, Moses. Our good friend Adrian Van Vactor thinks they were just very uh, cleverly trained magicians, uh, using sleight of hand to duplicate what God was doing supernaturally. And I think there's a lot of uh, of heft behind that because, uh, uh, let's face it, they could only keep up with Moses for a while. And then uh, after a while, they said, man, this is the finger of God. And they the, were terrified about it.
0: The plague of lice in particular. Yeah. You know, you make the Nile turn to blood. That's impressive coverage. But, uh, I but go, we can
1: <laughs> cause water to turn color. Yeah,
0: we, we, we have dye. Yeah. Uh, well, making frogs appear from nowhere. Well, where am I going to get a frog? Well, apparently they all showed up today. But I can make a frog appear from nowhere. Where am I going to get a frog? Oh, well, I'll just hide it for a second. Oh, well, uh, what about the, you know, Plagues and so forth regarding uh, everything else that followed. But when the lice showed up, they were confounded because why? Well, lice aren't uh, what you call intelligent animals. You can't train lice and yet for some reason the lice were not going after the people of Israel who were even less apologetic about their beards and uh, neglecting shaving than I am but the Egyptians were so dainty that they literally invented ancient mascara. The men and women would pluck themselves clean because they were just that scared of getting lice. Well the lice were going after the people without hair and leaving alone the people who did have hair. So either Moses has revolutionized the concept of animal training by being able to instruct these insects to go against yeah, yeah, except real. <laughs> yeah. And in this case, they're like, that doesn't happen, but this is happening. This isn't a trick. This is God. We're out of here. Yeah, That's uh, yeah. The rationale, and I think it's sound. But when we're talking about this issue, let's just recap the point. Paul references the Midrash, which is where these individuals' names are. A Midrash okay. is a Jewish yeah. commentary on the Old Testament, yeah. and in particular, isn't authoritative for the same reason that other things that Paul quotes like Epimenides who was a Greek pagan philosopher when he references his poem regarding Zeus he doesn't acknowledge Zeus's existence he acknowledges the point in Acts 17 that we are God's offspring but not the Greek god of the thun- of uh, storms but the biblical god who is our heavenly father right just like there was a quotation in Jude of first Enoch doesn't mean the book of Enoch is this insight in the spiritual yeah. realm, but it is a valid prophecy that the Lord is coming back and he's not alone. He's right. coming with 10,000 of his saints. Yeah. If a truth statement is made, then it's no more an endorsement of the entirety of its truth than if, for example, you make regular quotations of Mark Twain in your sermons. You don't recommend Mark Twain as an expositive Bible commentary, but, That's if a he big N-O. <laughs> yeah. but if he makes a truth statement, that can be quoted and applied to Scripture. That's exactly what Paul does, that exactly what Jude does, that is exactly what we're doing and clarifying. So uh, Janice and Jambres, uh, if they were historical figures or not there was a truth statement to their observation in the Midrash and that was what? There's always going to be people opposing the work of God. It was true in Moses day, it's true in this one. Yeah.
1: I think that answers it. All
0: right, here's a question from Yari, who's curious about the rendering of 2 Timothy 1 7 in the ESV translation compared to the King James translation. Let me read both, and his attention is on one word in particular. The word, or I guess the rendering of the passage in the English Standard Version, ESV for short, is for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. The King James Bible, as well as the New King James after it, says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, that sound mind versus... um, the ESV's rendering of it. The self-control, self-control contrast yeah. is throwing them for a loop. Obviously, they're synonyms. If you don't have self-control, that doesn't mean you have a sound mind. And if you have a sound mind, that's going to naturally include you being in control of yourself, a right. grasp of reality and behavior that reflects that. But note, that's not the only variation. For example, in the New American Standard Bible, one you have fondness for, uh, says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity... Same word for fear, right? Right. But of power and love and discipline. In the uh, New Living Translation, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. And the nearly inspired version says the same. That's a joke. Uh, when When we're talking about this, though, people see different words, and they oftentimes react to it more than they ought to. When and what is the most appropriate reaction when we see different words and how should we have a sound mind
1: <laughs> well, when I it think, comes to Well, I think this. we can demonstrate this for you. You know, and sitting in front of Sean on his screen right now is a uh, really helpful website called BibleHub.com. Yeah. And uh, it will not only give you a, uh, a listing under these verses of the way in different English translations will render a verse, but then you can also look up the actual word that is being used in that particular passage and uh, discover exactly what its meaning is through the use of a uh, Bible study device called a lexicon, which explains Greek words and gives you a definition. If you've ever seen the Amplified Bible, what the Amplified Bible attempts to do is to uh, be sort of a lexicon uh, along with a Bible because it will give you a definition of a particular word while you're reading the passage. So, uh, just going through this now. What is the word in Greek translated "sound mind" or "self-discipline"? Selfrenesmo, which means what, according to lexicon? In general, self-control or self-discipline. So, the idea behind that is it's all-encompassing. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, it wouldn't stand to, to reason to say that an individual that was uh, acting in an erratic way was, uh, you know, acting in a way that was uh, disciplined. In the same way, if a person is behaving in a disciplined way, we would say they were behaving in a way that is in harmony with a sound mind. So, you know, it's just a nuance of the translation. Uh, That's why it's good to take a look at a number of different translations and get that more fully developed picture that's involved there. But it does not change in the slightest the meaning of the passage. Unless, of course, you go to college, then it's an irreconcilable contradiction. <laughs> yeah, I'm, but, but we digress. Uh, I'm joking.
0: All right, uh, here's a question from our website. Uh, what is the purpose of the Zodiac? Is it biblical? Well, um, the Zodiac is mentioned in the Bible. This is Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 1. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles, nor be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are feudal. Notice what he goes on to describe. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree. They cannot speak, they must be carried. They cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great in might, who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations, and in their kingdoms there is none like you. But they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. Notice this. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. After describing the signs of heaven which is a Babylonian broad term for the stars in the sky, used for
1: signs and times and seasons and so forth. According to Genesis. That's why God, uh, one of the reasons that we have the uh, stars, to uh, be able to mark time like that. But if people would then look at
0: the stars and say, oh, uh, Scorpio is intervening with uh, Jupiter and this uh, other constellation is in combat, so the significance of Orion battling Scorpio means that Wait a minute, we're in the wrong hemisphere. What's going on here? The reason why Jeremiah contrasts the zodiac, the stars of heaven, and their significance and relevance to your life as idolatry is because it is. It's not biblical to look at the zodiac or your horoscope and say this is relevant to your relationship with God. Now, there are good and sincere people like Hugh Ross and others who have looked at the majesty of of the heavens, the expanse of the universe, and the significance of creation, and says there is something to be said regarding the gospel and the existence of God in this but he doesn't look at the constellations or the positioning thereof and say this is some, I guess, gospel message that we can skew. Oh, the, the Virgo, well, that's the Virgin Mary and so forth. No, that's completely Leo ridiculous. Is the uh, lion of the tribe of Judah and No, so forth. these were named by Greeks, thoroughgoing pagans who did not have the God of Israel, the true and living God, in any way in mind. And when we look at those directions... have to use a bit of your imagination to even keep up with them. But the point being made is this, if we, as you followed up through, should we leave the zodiac alone or did God design the stars to form constellations? I think you should leave the zodiac alone because the formation of the constellations is something
1: we came up with, not God. As far as their purpose and significance, we can just stick with scripture. Yeah, and uh, boy, we get this direct warning in Isaiah chapter 47 and verse 13. It says, you are wearied, With your many counsels, let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known, what shall come upon you? Behold, they are like stubble, the fire consumes them, they cannot deliver. So I would say that's a pretty ringing lack of endorsement for anyone who tries to uh, Christianize the idea of astrology or the horoscope. Uh, You know, it's just funny. How individuals will say, uh, oh, uh, you know, I can tell that you're a Libra. And I'll say, well, actually, I was born in August. Oh, well, I can see that you were really a, a Leo, but, but with uh, this particular thing rising that makes you look like a Libra. So, you know, I've, I've seen people jump through all these hoops. And, you know, the one thing I've discovered about these kind of speculations is when it explains everything, it explains nothing. Uh, you know, and and I, I guess the, the bottom line is this: astrology it assumes that created things like the the sun, the moon, the planets, the stars uh, have an uh, an impact on human destiny. And the, the the bottom line is this: there is only one person who is in control of your destiny, and it's the one who created the stars the moon the sun and the planets these things are uh, minor in comparison to their creator uh, you know for me uh, rather than reading a horoscope and trying to figure out what my future is going to be i know what my future is uh, we are told that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it till the day of christ jesus we're told for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope Uh, you know, I I think of Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. How can I walk in those good works? Uh, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to his word. Uh, That's the most important thing. And if anything in the newspaper or anything that you see on TV, and it seems like astrology is kind of having a, a revival these days. A lot of the online influencers are talking about celebrity, uh, you know, astrology readings and so forth. And, oh, you've got to have a really specific one with this really experienced person to really figure all this stuff out. the fundamental flaw in all of this is you're looking to the creation rather than the creator for the hope of your future. And to me, that's really trading down. All right. Um,
0: Contradiction of the day. This is, again, from an atheist source who apparently made the assertion that Sarah— Having faith that she would conceive is something the Bible talks out of both sides of its mouth on. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 11, it says that Sarah had faith that she would conceive. Now, we don't have to call their bluff on that. We can say definitively, yes, it does. Yes. What they say in the negative, that the Bible denies that Sarah had faith is in Genesis chapter 18, verses 10 through 15. I will read the passage because whenever someone brings up a contradiction, that's the first and most important thing you can do. Call their bluff. If you're taking notes at home, remember that. Go to the verse that they are claiming contradicts with another. Since we know Hebrews eleven eleven plainly states that by faith Sarah conceived, she had faith and it was in the fact that God would make her womb, even though it was very old, would still in fact bear a child. In verse 10 of Genesis 18, and again, the context isn't necessarily misrepresented here. They do give more than one verse, in fact, more than half a verse, so I guess we have some credit to give there. But it says, and he said, this is the angel of the Lord, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, your, uh, Sarah your wife shall have a son. Parenthetically it notes, Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old. Very flattering there, Moses. Well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, notice the Lord, Right. <laughs> all L-O-R-D, all caps there. Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. So the Lord repeats himself and says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Right. Sarah denied it yeah. <laughs> because still standing outside the tent. I didn't laugh, and God said, No, but you did laugh. Yeah. So anywhere in that text, folks, of Sarah doubting, not having faith, the definitive statement that Sarah not only, A, didn't have faith, that the Lord could do this, but B, never had faith from this time onward. It's almost as if, it's almost as if when the Lord told Sarah directly, is anything too hard for the Lord, Hebrews 11.11 explains to us, she took that to heart. It's the same kind of arguing of saying that, well, you say in the Bible that Abraham existed, And in the book of Genesis chapter 12, it says indeed that Abraham existed. But in Genesis chapter 9, it doesn't mention Abraham at all. So if Abraham didn't exist at this time, the Bible is contradicting itself. How could Abraham come into existence at a point in history?
1: Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. Could
0: Sarah not have faith at some point and, imagine this, develop? Learn a lesson. Take it to heart. This is what brings us to the second phase of dealing with a contradiction. And no, it's not being smarmy. It is knowing what a contradiction is. A contradiction is a violation of the second formal law of logic that A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and cancel each other out. If the Bible was contradicting itself, then Hebrews 11.11 stating, Sarah, by faith, conceived. And he, or, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 18 would have to definitively say, without faith, Sarah never conceived, right. or without faith, Sarah conceived. It would be in direct conflict with the core statement. But if you impose on the text something that A is irrational and B is inconsistent, that is not a contradiction. It's certainly a difference, but it requires a willful dismissal of anything farther than just taking their word for it in order to be taken seriously.
1: Yeah. Hey, uh, real quick, as we're wrapping up the program, as many of you know, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, the potential uh, uh, overturning of Roe versus Wade being leaked in a preliminary document has lit up uh, social media. A lot of people are asking, okay, if someone asks me why I'm pro-life, how should I respond? Well, let me give you four ways you can respond real quick as we wrap up the program, and uh, they're easy to remember. You might want to just even scribble them down. Number one is Scripture. The Bible tells us in Psalm 139, "...your eyes saw my unformed substance in the days which were ordained for me, when there was not yet one of them." From the Bible's point of view, life begins at conception. The second point is the Savior. We see in the book of Luke, chapter 1, that when Mary and Elizabeth met... When both their children were in utero, one of them in the first trimester, the other in the second trimester, they were able to have a spiritual experience with one another. There is no passage of scripture that indicates that there was a lack of personhood at that time. Third uh, is science. There is uh, nothing that in science that shows that a fertilized egg... Is an inanimate object. It's a being that is human. It's a human being. And finally, sense. Ask them the question, when did your life begin? And I think that will give you some great things to share. God bless you.
0: You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time.